Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. We continue our coverage of the latest developments in the criminal cases against former President Trump and Hunter Biden. In Georgia, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis asked a judge to set a March 2024 date for Trump's criminal trial. Meanwhile, Trump is seeking to postpone the trial in DOJ's 2020 election case until April of 2026. Several of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia case, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, have filed notices of removal to transfer the case to federal court and stop the state from proceeding any further in the matter. And Attorney General Merrick Garland has designated U.S. Attorney David Weiss as special counsel as he continues to oversee the Hunter Biden investigation. Preet Bharara and I discuss all that and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So we spent some time talking about the Georgia Fulton County indictment, all the counts, some of the unindicted co-conspirators. So the question of how that's going to unfold is something we should we should address. Yeah. Let me say a, a more a fundamental thing first for people who don't practice law and actually for people who do practice law. All the states are different. And there's a reason why you have to be licensed and admitted to the bar in each individual state you're going to practice because I would certainly fail the Georgia bar exam because everything in Georgia, not everything, but many things in Georgia are just different from how things are done in federal practice. There's the name for the episode. Everything in Georgia is just different. And some things that you intuitively think should be the case everywhere or are the case everywhere are just not. I made a mistake on the Stay Tuned podcast a couple of weeks ago, just assuming, which you should never do, that with the federal system in most states that I'm aware of, including the state that I'm most familiar with, New York, the governor has the ability, like the president does on a federal case, but the, in a state case, the governor has the ability to pardon a defendant. Not true in Georgia. There's a panel set up by appointees from the governor, and there are certain conditions and rules upon which pardons must be based. But that's not the only thing, and we're going to get to it in a, in a moment. Maybe one of the first things to talk about is not central to the charges, but to the way these things are going to unfold, as I said. Grand jurors apparently being threatened and mentioned by name in social media posts. And the first time I saw a report about that over the last few days, I mean, how can that be? Because in my experience, and surely in your experience, grand jurors' names are not made public. In fact, the only person, in, at least in the Southern District of New York, who signs the indictment is the foreperson. And in all the documents I've seen where they release indictments, the grand juror's name is often, if not always, redacted. In Georgia, what's the rule, Joyce? In Georgia, the names of grand jurors are released, which gave some internet sleuths the opportunity to come up with what they believed to be the addresses and phone numbers for at least some of the grand jurors. And those made their way to some of the, uh, I don't want to say conservative media sites, because it ended up in some of the dark corners of the internet where people have engaged in potentially criminal conduct towards others, including doxing and swatting. Yeah, and not only are the are the grand jurors' names released or tend to be released, as we understand it, it's a requirement. Yes. That an indictment that doesn't contain the names of the grand jurors, not just the ones, by the way, who voted, 
but also the ones who maybe were not present or didn't vote with their names crossed out, but still readable or legible. And there are cases in Georgia, as I understand it, where the court has said, if the names are not present, the indictment is defective. What do you make of that? It's a feature of our system of federalism that every state has its own criminal code, its own criminal procedures. Georgia's is very different in in this case. It does favor, and in fact, it mandates public disclosure of who sits on a grand jury in the interests of transparency. Obviously, a law like that was not written contemplating a defendant like Donald Trump. But this is not the first time a grand jury has indicted a dangerous organization. There's another RICO case in Georgia in Fulton County right now where a jury is being struck, a trial jury, for a case involving a gang of rappers, including the lead defendant, Young Thug, where only one of the defendants in that case has been released on bond because they were deemed to be so dangerous. So this is the practice in Georgia, and it is something that had to be followed in this case. Yeah, but the other odd thing about it, so then you think, well, and I don't mean to pick on Georgia, I just find it interesting. And if there are Georgia practitioners, and I know there are many excellent ones, you should write in to me and Joyce and explain some of this. So you think that maybe the grand jury practice is very transparent so that defendants can make arguments about irregularities in the grand jury practice. And so part of the reason you have the insistence on the names being disclosed of the grand jurors is that there can be some application for some relief or know that it was it was done, you know, according to regular practice. But then we discover, according to our team's research, that unlike the case in the federal system, there's no transcript made of a grand jury proceeding. Do you find that odd? You know, this is one of the many times today that I think we'll say Georgia practice is different. It is odd. You know, from a federal perspective, I can only recall one time where I saw a serious challenge to the uh, propriety of prosecutorial conduct in the grand jury. But in that case, the transcript was essential for prosecutors to make clear that they had not misbehaved. So it's surprising to me that this is the law in Georgia. It's surprising to me that prosecutors don't want there to be transcripts made, let alone defendants. Well, I'm, I might be missing something, so I apologize, and I hope I'm not making a second series of errors about Georgia. But one of the reasons you want a transcript of the grand jury proceeding is when you put a witness into the grand jury or a cooperating witness into the grand jury, if you do that, for example, and then that witness testifies at trial, or the case agent, or an eyewitness to a crime, you want to make sure that their testimony is not at variance with what they said in the grand jury. And that's, that's basic material that's usually made available to the defense so that the defendant has an ability to defend against the case, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's something that's very critical. And in the absence of that, you're relying on handwritten notes and recollection. I remember when we first started talking about Georgia, it was confusing because there was this thing called a special grand jury that Fannie Willis had to convene for purposes of deciding whether or not to make a recommendation that another separate grand jury should file an indictment. So... Lots to learn. Lots to learn about Georgia. We are all going to school on Georgia criminal procedure this year. So here's another development which people are talking about, and I think is significant, potentially, but maybe not as significant as people say. The first person to make a motion for removal, which sounds like an odd word, to federal court was Mark Meadows. Now, what that means is there's a statute, we've talked about it before in connection with the Manhattan DA's office case where in certain circumstances that we'll explain or re-explain in a moment, if you're a federal official and you're charged in state court, there's a federal statute by which you can say, 
I want the case removed, in other words, transferred from the state court to federal court. And you have that right under certain circumstances. And remember, if you will, that Donald Trump and his team tried to do that in the Manhattan DA's case, and he lost that motion. And the case remains with the Manhattan DA in state court. What do you think is going to happen in Georgia? So this is a better case for removal than Manhattan. I'll explain why, but I think it still isn't good enough. There's a bright line here between official conduct and non-official conduct. And it's only crimes that are committed within the realm of a public official's job or within the realm of someone who's working for that public official and acting under their orders. That's the only sort of situation where you can be a candidate for removal. That's why in Manhattan, where Trump's conduct involving Stormy Daniels and and the payoff, uh, which preceded his election, didn't qualify. Here, the distinction is a little bit murkier. It's the line between the work of the presidency and the work of the campaign. And since presidents don't have a role to play in the counting of votes in states, there's a good argument that everyone who was acting in Georgia was acting in a campaign capacity. So removal is not a possibility here. I think that that's where this one ends up, to be honest. The whole thing is a little bit circular, and you and I were talking about this over the weekend. Because by definition, for something to be within the scope of your duties, it has to be lawful conduct, right? If you're breaking a law while you're a federal official, that's not within the scope of your duties, definitionally, right? So if your conduct is alleged to have been unlawful, the government will argue and appropriately would argue it's not in your official capacity. Here we have an indictment, right? And so again, by definition, every allegation of misconduct is about unlawful activity. And so you would think the government would be able to say, almost on its face, if there's a credible allegation of unlawful conduct, how can it possibly be within the scope of your duties? But there are other cases in the same circumstances where the same definitions apply and the same allegations are made and the cases do get transferred to federal court. Isn't that a little bit odd? It is odd, but I think this is what the case law provides. It says that the role of a judge at this stage isn't to pass on the merit of the federal defense that a defendant wants to assert. That's the requirement here. You have to have some sort of defense. Mark Meadows is suggesting that there's a form of immunity for his conduct while he was acting on behalf of the president. And so the judge isn't supposed to screen that out just to decide if that defense is a colorable one that the public official should be entitled to assert. And if so, the case goes to federal court. That is a a weird consideration here because of the kind of conduct that we're talking about and the context being this effort to steal an election. The more typical case involves a federal law enforcement official who finds themselves being prosecuted in state court and they say, hey, wait a minute, I've got an immunity defense that I want to be able to assert in federal court. You know, the state is in essence trying to interfere with the working of the federal government. If I'm a federal law enforcement agent and I shot someone while executing a search warrant, that was part of my official duties, and that case should be decided in federal court. Here we've got, for instance, Mark Meadows saying, well, I was down in Georgia doing stuff that Trump wanted me to do, whether that was candidate Trump or President Trump, I think is is the dispute here, obviously. And you can see how the case law that's developed in the the, um, law enforcement context is really an awkward fit for people in this situation. So here's another peculiarity, I guess, about Georgia law or some of the 
case law in Georgia that I would not have predicted. So when the first removal motion was made by Mark Meadows, and the question arises, well, so if Mark Meadows wins the transfer motion to federal court, does he just go to federal court and the other 18 remain in state court? And I would have said yes. <laughs> I would have said, you have a divided up case, and that happens from time to time. There are times where you might bifurcate a trial or sever some defendants from the trial, even if all of them are taking place in state court. And then our crack team of researchers, and Joyce, I think you pointed out to me a case that suggests otherwise, that if, if even one defendant of the 19 successfully makes a transfer motion to federal court, everyone goes to federal court. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting and not entirely clear. For sure, if you have a defendant who has, say, 10 counts in the charges against him and his argument about being a federal official only applies to one of them, it's clear that in that case, all of the counts would go with him to federal court. And it looks like under the case law, there's a strong suggestion that the whole case transfers. Yeah, and we should make clear that a requirement, whether you think something is within the scope of duties or not, or you you buy the circular argument I made before or not, a number of these defendants have no claim and will not be able to make a real motion to remove or to transfer to federal court because they were not federal officials at the time of their conduct. That includes Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and others. They were just private citizens. But if we're right, and one of these motions wins, everyone gets shipped over to federal court. Now, I have been saying, I don't think there's a huge difference with a couple of exceptions. You still, even if you're in federal court, you apply to the extent this makes sense to a layperson. You still use the Georgia RICO statute. The transfer to federal court doesn't suddenly put the federal RICO statute into play. It's a federal judge with federal procedures, federal rules of evidence, the practices that are associated with choosing juries in federal court. All of that is federal. But as for the substantive law, the federal judge in the case, if there's a removal or a transfer, applies the Georgia RICO statute, which we've already talked about. That's all correct. And so some people have said that the advantage here would be getting a jury that would include a more conservative jury pool. And again, my look suggests that that's not the case. A little bit of federal criminal procedure in the Northern District of Georgia, juries do not come from the entire district, which is pretty big. It goes from Atlanta north to the tip of the state and includes some really conservative parts of the population. Instead, the jury gets drawn from the division that includes Atlanta, Fulton County. It's, I think, six or seven counties to the extent that people think, I disagree with this, that juries are likely to mirror the way the voting population um, votes. This is a Democratic-leaning part of Georgia. Joe Biden won in most of these counties. I'm not sure that there's a huge advantage there, frankly. As we've said before, it's hard to game out juries in any particular case, and you can make guesses about them, but you know who knows? And I think you can find a, a fair and impartial jury pretty much anywhere, even in a high-stakes case like this one. But the facts are the facts. The law remains the same. And the particular defenses that can be used don't really change if you're in state court or federal court. The other thing that's different, and this is not a legal change, but it maybe will alter the experience. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, Thank you for supporting our work. Music